0: Welcome, everyone, to Pen Pen Pals. Uh, this is one of our in-between episodes, and this time we are covering one of my favorite animated films ever, Jinro, The Wolf Brigade. Uh, this is Alex.
1: Hi, I'm Blixa. And
0: hey, it's Ben. And today we have two of my favorite guests returning and two people who are well-versed in anime, both Kitekio Hitman and <laughs> otherwise. Uh, please welcome Sin and Sophie. Hello. Hello. Hey. Uh, Sin, Sophie, you two are super busy. You've been doing Elden Ring stuff. Are you, are, are you overwhelmed? How are you feeling about this season of stuff you're doing?
2: I, I should apologize before I start that I sound so hoarse. Oh. Um, I know I can't do anything about it. I was gargling. It didn't do anything.
0: Well, you sound great to us. Um, oh, thank you. We really appreciate you working through the, uh, the stress and the torment. <laughs> sin any anything on your radar are you are you exhausted from all your editing or
2: are you cruising right along
3: uh you know <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> what we're saying is that like our lives are currently so stressful that we're very happy to sit here and go into the wacky escapist fantasy of jinro yeah yeah <laughs> As just a break from everything yeah <laughs> yes. yeah some
4: dark dark shit
3: So, Sophie and I watched it together, but unfortunately, we have such a great time together. It was a lot of fun. So, we had to watch it separately afterwards.
2: (laughs) Yeah, to to have a proper, miserable experience. Yeah. We actually watched a VHS of this. (gasps) Beautiful. I have it here oh my gosh that's so beautiful oh it doesn't
0: even have a label yeah oh. this
2: this is my copy of Jinro that I recorded off the TV in probably like 2001 2002 no way and dubbed dubbed to DVD even though I have I I do have the proper DVD release I thought we could we need the full experience you are
0: my hero uh so let's talk a little bit about the history of this film okay uh and our histories with this film I first saw this, I think Ben and I both saw this at the same time. We went to Otacon hey. and they happened to have a 35 millimeter print and they had like one of their big auditorium showing it. And I remember like almost no one being in the theater. Uh, this film is directed by not Mamoru Oshii, but um, Mamoru Oshii did write it. And I know his name was huge already because of, um, gosh, what's the huge movie? Ghost in the, shell? Ghost in the
2: Shell. Yes,
0: Ghost in the Shell. Thank you but maybe because his name wasn't like top billing director like
4: people just didn't know about it yet yeah i guess that would have been like 2001 i mean maybe it was just like already the the hype was over and it was more like a rescreening or something like that yeah well, the, the DVD I've got very, like, it, it says sort of
2: sneakily, like, from the director of Ghost in the Shell. And, like, <laughs> yeah, technically he wrote it, but he didn't actually direct it.
0: Yeah. Um. Let's see. Oh, the director is Hiroyuki Okiura. Mm. And he has worked with uh, Mamoru Oshii yeah. a bunch. He was one of the lead animators on Ghost in the Shell. Uh, he did uh, this cool film that I have not seen yet, but it looks wild, called A Letter to Momo. Hmm so a lot of talent and like industry uh uh standard people went into the production of this um and like it
2: shows yeah he's like he's a a protege of oshis and you can absolutely tell from watching it like this is a guy who studied under oshi because it's it's, yeah yeah
1: the director are they the one that did the sort of art house movie that's live action black and white very bizarre Oh, the 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 other ones that are in this alternate timeline universe,
2: Oh, the, these
0: ones, the other Kerberos. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, you were the best guest. Um, <laughs> I think, Oshi directed those. those he are actually Oshi, has yeah. a surprising amount of uh, experience directing live action yeah. for being such an animation heavy artist. But those two are uh, or is it three total? There's this. Well,
2: mm, two and we'll say two and a half.
0: Two and a half. For the purposes of this,
2: there's two, but then there's, like, a weird side one.
0: Okay, so uh, there's Red Spectacle, right? Which is this, like, absurdist dreamscape of one of these Kerberos soldiers coming back from exile and, like... The madness
2: that happens after that well yeah the, the thing about the the two um the two live action ones is they are set like the time the exact years are a little hazy but it's about 30 mm-hmm. to 40 years after Jinro oh wow so you're not getting any continuation of characters or organizations and mm-hmm. the only basically the only thing that's continuing is the protect gear it's like pushing it forward a little so mm-hmm. yeah um th- these are these are the first I, I'm holding them up These are the DVDs (laughs) of the first two. They're both live action. And um, in terms of the timeline, it's gone backwards. So Red Spectacles, which was the first, that's the final story. And it's like you said, it's like after the Kerberos unit is dissolved, one of them comes back to Japan. And it's like, the thing about the live action ones is the actual amount of Kerberos action in them is very, very small. (laughs) It's yeah, the Kerberos stuff is basically just bumpers at the start and end. It reminds, actually, a lot of, of the Future War stuff in the first Terminator, where you see sort of, like, you see this thing happening, but the actual movie is the stuff that's sort of on the periphery of that. So
0: yeah. Red
2: Spectacles is about a guy, he's one of the Kerberos unit returning to Japan. It's very, very heavily influenced by a French science fiction film called La Jetée. Um, To the point of just borrowing whole shots from it. Oh. Um, La Jetée is one of the sort of go-to like avant-garde um, sci-fi films. It's a film that, um, it, it, apart from one shot, it's entirely done in stills. It's about tw- It's basically like watching a 20-minute narrated slideshow. And it's about it's about a man. It's actually the, the story that Twelve Monkeys is based on. Yeah,
4: I was going to ask about that. Yeah. yeah, This
2: it's this guy in the future has to go back to the past to try to event a uh, um event. It's about a guy in the future has to go back to the past to try to prevent this cataclysm from happening. Hmm. That's it's a big influential thing. Um, Oshi has cited it explicitly when he's talked about stuff. And there's scenes in in Red Spectacles that are basically lifted from La Jete. Also, like, we'll talk about it, but there's also bits of Jinro that seem very heavily influenced by it. So I'm sure he got Okiro to watch it at some point.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: then Stray Dog is actually a prequel to Red Spectacles, even though it came out later. And that that is the prequel to the guy coming back to Japan. And it's it's like uh, extremely chill apocalypse now would be a good way of describing it, where it's like this. Ooh. The Kerberos guy has gone rogue and he's hiding out in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So it's just this very long travelogue of this guy trying to get him to come back, um, oh. sort of like just going into like Taiwan. But it's it's really just lots of very long lingering shots of a guy like riding by rice paddies. <laughs> and um, it's just this very, very nice sort of soothing guitar soundtrack. And then the Kerberos stuff kind of kicks in at the very end. And yeah, those are both set. I don't think they ever give exact dates, but the, the historical events leading up to them are all like 1980s and 1990s. So it's mm-hmm. implied to take around like late 90s, early 2000s, whereas Jinro is like late 50s, early 60s. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like <clears throat> reconstruction post occupation Japan.
2: Well, reconstruction, post-occupation, alternate history. But like, if, right. if you don't know that going in, it's massively confusing because there's so much supplementary Kerberos stuff that was never localized that it can it can be very of to be, because they're not going to like hold you by the hand and explain very much. Like all the soldiers are, are supposed to be like post-war Nazis. Yeah. And like, if you don't know that, then you start hearing references to like Lebensbaum and stuff and not quite understanding why it's in there.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, before I forget, uh, Sin, do you what does je, "le jeté uh, translate to? It
3: means that movie that Sophie brings up every five minutes because she's a <laughs> yeah. film genius.
2: Now, this is this is slander. I have brought it up like twice. With her. <laughs> I brought it up once ages ago because I thought we need something to watch together, and it was in French. Ooh, yeah, it it means it means the jetty. It's it's like it's because it's it's set at an airport. Okay. So it's it's set on like the the sort of the thing jutting out of the side of the airport where you watch the planes land. Oh,
4: okay, I think there's a version of it that's like a Criterion copy that has this mm. other movie that's kind of like this documentary. I, I Sun Soleil. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. You're saying that the second one is then like this travel log cuz that's a yeah, yeah. like a travel log documentary. I don't know
2: if Oshi ever mentioned Sun Soleil but you can definitely if you watch a lot of Oshi you can see the influence of the like very long sort of non-narrative montage sequences that he tends to put in things yeah. which is somewhere mm. between that and somewhere between like um do we know Yasujiro Ozu here or do we just do anime? <laughs> I don't know. Do you have a pitch? Yeah, Yasujiro Ozu is a Japanese melodrama director from the 50s and 60s. He's reasonably well known in the West because he, he sort of got this big push um in like film circles. Anyway, he, he made a film called Tokyo Story that is sort of um, Tokyo Monogatari that's like held up as like this, this for a while. I don't know if it still is, but it was rated like the number one sort of like film of all time by critic circles. But yeah, mm-hmm. he, he's a director who does this thing that's um, called pillow shots where the idea is just like in between scenes, there's just a shot or a couple of shots or a sequence that doesn't have any narrative function. You know a shot of someone hanging out the clothes or like a shot of a bus driving along or something that's just there to like make the world feel sort of like these sort of little moments of like quiet in this world Whoa. and yeah and like you can that's not he didn't invent that but that's sort of what he's known for i guess in the west and like you can see again like oh she sort of takes that and runs with it and does 20 minute long ones 20 minutes <laughs> slight exaggeration but like (laughs) (laughs) if if you think about like like in the pat labor movies like they'll just stop and like wander around a drain for five minutes and it doesn't have any like real yeah oh another
0: Oshi thing right yeah
2: well actually well, this is how i know about um kerberos because i got into it through being a fan of oshi mm. who i got into through pat labor because he like you said he has this extremely extensive filmography that's mostly not known in the west because he's because pr- like pat pat labor and ghost and Michelle both got localized here in the 90s that's how i i didn't i didn't know who he was but i watched them and liked them and then realized later on it was the same guy Mm -hmm. um angel's egg also got kind of some promotion here but not a great deal yeah i i just sort of fell into following his stuff after that because he just he's just churning things out constantly and like when Mm -hmm. i said that there were two and a half other live action kerberos things the half one it's it's so bizarre it's a Within the Kerberos universe, like, faux documentary about changes to Japanese stand-and-eat dining in the universe of Kerberos. (laughs) But done in this, I forget what he, I think he called it Super live nation. This weird technique he came up with where he basically converted everyone, he, he filmed it all live and then converted everything into stills and, like, cut them out and stuff. It's so strange looking. Whoa. But he's always on the... Like, just pushing these ideas that aren't necessarily, like, terribly expensive or complicated, but he becomes obsessed with the aesthetic of. Like, I don't know if you can find it. I have it. But it's, like, he did a series of Pat Labor shorts that are CG, but they're supposed to look like Japanese paper theater. Mm. Oh, wow. Where all the characters are just, they're all just cutouts on little sticks moving around, but it's CG animated. And that, that, I guess that's sort of, like, something that came up during Jinro is, like... Jinro was planned to be the third in the live-action Kerberos. Thing. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. I was wondering who, who knew this. <laughs> <laughs> no, you probably have the um, most information. I didn't. I didn't, I didn't want to step on your toes. Um, Kerberos was planned to be the third one, and he was going to make it. He was ready to go, and then Ghost in the Shell happened, mm-hmm. and he had to work on Ghost in the Shell, so he didn't have time to work on or to work on Jinro. He He didn't. He wrote it, and he was very invested in it. That's why he wrote mm-hmm. it. Because he usually doesn't write his scripts. He has a collaborator called um, Kazunoro Ido, I- I- Ido, who does most of his... He do, he, they work together. But um, he wrote Jinro's script himself because it was, like, his way of sort of controlling it. Mm. Because he wasn't going to be able to direct it. And uh, I think that's why it's directed by Okiyora, because he's, like, a protege of his. He was, like, a safe pair of hands. And one of the things that came up during that is that Okiura hates using computers. Mm-hmm. So like at the time Oshi was doing Ghost in the Shell, which has quite a lot of CG and quite a lot of digital in it. It's like a composite in a lot of the scenes. Okiura was refusing to do that. He wanted to hand draw everything. Mm-hmm. And if it's kind of extraordinary when you watch it how smooth a lot of it is, like you would think that was particularly the shots where they're on the cable car and it's turning corners. You'd think that has to be CG, but that's all done by hand.
0: I believe it. Because that was the era where people were like switching over to uh, CG. Mm. We got the experimentation in FLCL and um, Mm. Ghost in the Shell has some of the earliest Mm. like computer digitally made um, shots. But yeah, like this movie in particular, it is one of the last things that I've seen where the hand animation just like pops so well.
4: Mm. And, and then so then Jinro, it's based on, or like this universe was originally a, a manga.
2: It started off as a manga, yeah. It's, it's a very, like I said, there's so much Kerberos stuff that you just don't have access to in the West. There's so many manga and radio plays and stuff that you just don't. Get a chance to to access because it was never localized. But yeah, the, the Kerberos thing is um it's based partially on Oshi's like childhood and teen years because mm-hmm. um, he grew up in the sixties and he grew up in a very turbulent political time where Japan was struggling with the, the occupation by the U.S. and there were a lot of riots and they had a prime minister who was essentially like a fascist who was you know like like just just putting things into law without um asking anybody there were a lot of protests against it and there's this tension over like japan is basically like a vassal state of the us and them using and like not letting them have any independence and pushing back against that and like nationalists pushing back against that and um it, it essentially sort of all collapsed there was a big left-wing movement that sort of like it ended up not accomplishing a great mm-hmm. deal and there was a sort of like sense of hopelessness and he was involved in that as a as a student, and he talks about this if you read interviews with him, where like he was very, very politically active, and then he sort of like everything fell apart, and he became very disillusioned. And um, Kerberos is like his response to that, where it's like an alternate history where World War II plays out slightly differently, and Japan's occupied by Germany instead of the US. Mm-hmm um so it's, it's basically occupied by Nazis mm-hmm. and then it's about like that sort of carrying that through to like the events that he had to live through but with a German occupation instead of a US occupation and his 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 stance is like well would things actually have been better if we were run by Nazis I don't know is sort of the takeaway from from Kerberos mm-hmm. uh,
0: and the way I interpret it is like it's not as different as you would have thought mm, like yeah. because like we think that oh americans beat the nazis but like people in positions of power in america weren't like super left-wing or anything
2: no no and like that that's uh it's a like it feels a lot like the same concerns come up in Pat labor as well which is like it's obviously lighter because nothing is worse than this. But like <laughs> if you watch Pat Labor, like there's um the notion of like Japan sort of like losing its identity and becoming subsumed by this like capitalist machine yeah. is like a constant recurring thing in Pat Labor. And like this this second Pat Labor film, which is like the the closest in tone, I think, to because Pat Labor starts off as basically a comedy and then gradually gets sort of more serious. Pat Labor 2 is probably the closest. Tonally to Jinro in that it's like, it's sort of like a downbeat, like it's all overcast and it's all about sort of squabbling factions within the government and the police. But Mm -hmm. um, that has a fairly well-known, I guess. I don't know why, because people who haven't seen it won't know, but people always quote it. There's some scene in that where the kind of the protagonist of Pat Labor, who's like a detective, he's dealing with this, this military coup that's being masterminded by these like disaffected soldiers, kind of like Kerberos. And um, he and one of the sort of contacts with the group, they go out on this boat and they just drift down a river and they have this very, very long conversation about like the difference between if you have a just war, can you also have a peace that's unjust?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And this notion of like, okay, Japan is peaceful post occupation post reconstruction but it's only peaceful because on the periphery there's this constant conflict and these constant wars that are like fueling this machine mm-hmm. so is it actually any better than if we were really at war yeah capitalism needs a frontier yeah yeah that's like is they don't literally say it but it's like is this really and is it any different than if we actually were at war because we're at peace but it's fueled by war anyway and that's sort of like i think. It's this touching on the same notion of, like, this is not as peaceful as you think it is.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Blixer, did you have something? Yes. Uh, we went really deep, really fast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my clock says 24 minutes. Oh, my God. Uh, so we're going to have to edit something to put at the front end. Okay. Quick question, because it seems like we got two real big Jinro fans here. <laughs> what is Jinro, and why does it matter? All right. So Jinro,
0: subtitled The Wolf Brigade. Uh, is an alternate history look at Japan, and the alternate history part is that in World War II, Japan joins the Allies instead of the Axis powers. But for whatever reason, uh, the Axis powers win, and so Germany still develops a bomb and drops it on Japan, um, and then Germany occupies Japan after the war. So there's this like massive uh, economic effort after the war, obviously, to like reconstruct and reindustrialize Japan. There's this massive like wealth accumulation because of all the capital, but then there's also uh, mass um, slumming and social unrest because, you know, not everyone, it's not like a socialist uh, utopia, like not everyone is benefiting from this economic activity. So Jinro itself, takes place at the height of these um, popular protests. And Kerberos uh, is the name of a special paramilitary unit. They are part of the Capitol Police. So like, uh, the unrest is so bad that Japan uh, forms a new police structure called the Capitol Police. And the capitol police is uh separated into two divisions there's the public security sector which is kind of like the face of it and then there is uh the special unit or kerberos and kerberos like it's just guys in like tank plating with machine guns uh what the the film follows one of these paramilitary officers and his struggle after an event in the sewers
1: okay so question for sophie clear the new generation of like the anime community uh, does not think a lot of this film. Yeah. there's some complaints that you know maybe it's too slow.
2: I noticed that on on the Rotten Tomatoes it only has like a 50.
1: What? Yeah. So yeah. Whoa, 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 hold on. So my question is, why does this film matter? Why should the new generation of the anime community invest in this?
2: Um, I think we'll, we'll go into why during this because it's an extremely like the, the major complaint being that it's slow. And it's very slow. Not a great deal happens in it, but um that's all to a purpose. It's extremely like it's extremely meditative, and like we'll get to like um it's engaging with a lot of extremely complicated ideas and it's posing a lot of questions, but it's doing so through two characters who basically don't talk mm-hmm. for a lot of it. Like the the protagonist, um for say like he is I- I've said this before, like talking about bad gruff soldier characters where like people sort of they they won't they won't write them properly and they'll just use the excuse that they're stoic but like Fusei is someone who is genuinely written as someone who is stoic like he has a lot of internal conflict that he doesn't understand but he he doesn't know how to express his and how to deal with it mm-hmm. and it's about his grappling with that and it's about his grappling with like power structures and like sort of the ways in which people become radicalized into them the ways in which they justify them and that sort of wouldn't have worked if it were half as long basically this was actually designed initially as a six i think four or six episode ova oh
0: it's quite wow. a bit
2: germed into it yeah for a i think it's a bit over 90 minutes long
3: yeah there was one episode that was entirely dedicated to trains going back and forth <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, you're not far off. You're not far off. <laughs> yeah. It and yeah, it's... Um, street street yeah. cars. Street cars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and something that, like, we talked about that I, I don't know, because this will be edited if it'll be before or after this, but, like, this is one of the last fully hand-drawn things, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. fully hand-drawn movies, like, around the time digital was, was becoming the norm. And it's like, there's nothing... I think there's some digital post-processing, but it's all hand-drawn. Mm-hmm. And the attention to detail is astonishingly good.
0: Hmm. Yeah, the style itself, like you know, a lot of anime has the big eye, small mouth style, but this is mm. quite a bit more realistic. The faces yeah. look almost mm. not like obviously not photorealistic. It's not like trying to trick you, but mm. like people look like people, and their facial expressions look yeah dead, or they look like they don't look as expressive as a lot of other anime.
2: It looks rotoscoped right in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah, so
0: it's
1: one more question, and then we can sort of get to it. uh Sin, if I understand right like you had no prior history with this film well i don't know
3: because <laughs> as i was watching it i felt like i've seen it before so it's possible i have seen it as a child on tv as a background thing at some point or it's possible sophie told me so much about it in the past when we met that i'm having like false memories of it
1: but at the very least uh, no like attachment like jinro wasn't really no. on your radar uh, can I ask you just what was your impression?
3: Well, I personally love slow-ass movies, okay. so this was this was very good. But I can see how somebody who may be more into the Marvel style of action <laughs> might be disappointed by <laughs> it.
0: And then Blixa, just so we don't gloss over it, um, what do you have any experience with this? Like me and Ben saw it when we were younger. Uh, is this your
1: first time in- encountering no, it? I saw it in the. F- Theater when it first came out, wow. uh, like an art house theater down in DC. I thought it was pretty cool. I guess I had a lot going on because like it didn't really <laughs> stick with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. I will say, for the audience out there that may not have seen this, I, I felt like this was really dark and heavy, and the politics seemed pretty relevant. And I'm so glad we did this because now ah. I've got four other
4: people here that can maybe do some group therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Help you unpack this film. It, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I wonder kind of how many animes before this. I mean, we talked about Ghost in the Shell, I guess like Akira, but kind of where this is in the history of stuff like that, getting theatrical releases. I, I was looking up a little bit because this is um, Studio IG, And they uh, collaborated with Gainax to do the Evangelion movies. I was looking up the timeline for that. And so I guess like Evangelion and Ghost in the Shell were both released at the end of 1995. So kind of around the same time. And then I think the the next major thing that those two companies do are like a collaboration on the Evangelion movies in 1997 and then Jinro is 1999 so there's kind of yeah a lot of shared uh, history and and mm. i think i don't know this movie did kind of remind me of evangelion in the you know all the scenes of people meeting in public places to have little conversations yeah. like kind of like backstabbing like uh yeah
2: all those trains in the background
4: yeah
2: mm. <laughs> <laughs> Oh she actually made a movie called avalon And if you like cable cars, Ooh. this is the most cable cary <laughs> film I it's it's basically like the matrix. If in between every time they left the matrix, they rode a cable car around Poland for half an hour. I've always
0: said it's, the Matrix
2: needed more <laughs> cable cars. That is a pitch. It's entirely in Polish. Yeah. He doesn't speak Polish. So he, he wrote the script and got it translated into Polish and then just directed it. Yeah. Amazing.
0: Okay, so we've gushed a little bit, and we've got kind of a backstory. So it starts out with a, well, actually, the first thing in the film is it starts out with an image of the bomb. So right away, it shows us, like, this is part of the DNA of this, like, uh, and then it shows us stills and some of them are like animated stills where there's a few photographs in a row but these really beautiful almost sepia tone shots of a german soldier people uh, in poverty after the war and then it shows you two kerberos officers in the protect gear and one of them is like throwing a body to the street Um, So it gives us this nice tone to start out with. And then we get a wonderful, something that Mama has done before. We get this helicopter shot that swoops Mm -hmm. in with this wonderful musical theme, which you'll actually hear like a bunch of times in the movie, but it has several distinct segments. And so when I
4: first watched it, I thought they were totally different songs. You know, we, we talked about how this movie is slow. And I guess I didn't feel like it was particularly slow, but I do think... You probably, if you were making this movie now, I don't think you would start it with this big exposition thing of like photographic stills. Like I can see why someone watching that might, I don't know, just switch to something else. a,
2: A lot of the Kerberos things do start with that. Like the um, red, spect- hang on, red spectacles, this one, <laughs> that actually starts with like an extract from a fake history book, hmm. like it, it lists the history of the Cobra thing, then it cites it. It's just like a book that exists in this reality, but nowhere else. That's awesome. Did you say something, Sen?
3: Oh, I was going to say counterpoint to Ben. Elden Ring starts entirely with pictures of concept art. So. That's true. That's true.
2: We're, we're currently both recovering from Elden Ring. I think that's why we're so tired and <laughs> stressed. We had to become experts on this gigantic open world game in about a week.
3: Mostly Sophie. I give up after two hours. Yeah. So I'm like, you got this girl. You
2: just You've just been watching your boyfriend do it. Yeah. I, I think, like, going back to the slowness, like, I think one of the reasons this maybe doesn't hit with a lot of people is, like, it was marketed as, like, guy in cool armor shoots people. mm and that's really only the start and the end, and it start is it's also portrayed as like a horrible, traumatic thing. And if you come going, if you go in looking for that, mm. you're gonna start wondering why. Why am I watching this guy ride a tram? <laughs> like, get get back in the thing. Oshie <laughs> does this quite, and we can. You didn't direct it, he did write it, and it's like he does that a bit like Pat Labor is like the mech is in it at the start, and then the rest is people arguing about how mechs work. Because awesome. he's this, like, he's this, like, really, a, like, detail-oriented, like, rivet counter guy who's obsessed with, like, military technology sort of as an end in itself. The the guns, I think, in Jinro, like, they're all, like, based on actual guns, if you would, like, hypothetically continue their development. He's just really, really obsessed with that stuff.
0: And, yeah. Uh, the iconic armament, main armament of the Kerberos officers is an MG 42, which is one of the most famous guns in all of like it was a, you know, it's a horrible thing that it exists. But the mm. German mm. scientists who came up with it, this this gun fired like 900 rounds a minute, whereas like the yeah. closest thing to that mm. was like half that rate beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny that it that people think it's slow. I guess it is kind of slow. And you're right. Like, mm. if you go into it thinking it's action-packed, then you may think it's very slow. But every time I watch yeah. it, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. now we're at yeah. this scene. Now we're at this scene. Now yeah. we're at this scene. And yeah. before I know it, we're at the action at the end. So there's this protest. There are tensions at the front line with the police. And everything reaches a critical point when a Red Riding Hood, a young girl uh, delivering supplies for this far left militant organization called the sect, um, she delivers a bomb to the front row and the bomb gets tossed into the middle of the police, right? Uh, and that forces everyone to like scatter. And the we follow the Red Riding Hood into the sewer. Uh, where she meets up with a bunch of other sect members. Uh, They split ways again, but she gets a bomb, uh, another bomb before they split. Uh, Now, the other sect members get kind of cornered by uh, members uh, or the like two or three squads of these heavily armed military officers, essentially. And I love the juxtaposition in this meeting because... You know, it's like two militant forces squaring off. But if you actually look at what's happening, it's like some people who are as heavily armed as they can be, considering that they're technically civilians. And then three times as many people who are in military grade, like highest level of technology gear.
3: Yeah, it's like someone with a Molotov cocktail versus the Brotherhood of Steel.
0: Exactly. (laughs) And so... The tensions are very high. Everyone or all the people in the sect, they're all just terrified because they know what happens if they put their guns down, right? Uh, They're not going to give up. And so they all just get slaughtered. Um, And then we go to, I think, the most important scene in the film, uh, which is the Red Riding Hood. And we get her name later on. It's Nanami Agawa she gets cornered by one Kerberos officer. And this is our title character, or not our title character, but our main character, um, or at least our main male lead, uh, Fusei Kazuki? Kazuki Fusei. Uh, He corners her against this wall. He has her dead to rights with his gun trained on her. And then she also knows what happens if she gets arrested, so She's not going to give up. And she pulls the pin on this bomb. And it's this like, all the sound goes out of the film. Like it's a silent moment. And Fusei who through the entire film does not ask questions. He has two lines here. He says two words and it's very important. He says, don't when she goes to pull it and she hesitates for just a second. And then there are a bunch of other officers in the tunnel. And it's like, nope. Even if one person could reason with her, now she's terrified. And then when she pulls the cord, he says, why? And I think that's the only question he asks in the entire Mm. film. And I wondered, does anybody have an answer? Why does she pull that cord? Like, I know she's scared, but I wonder if anyone else come up with anything.
1: I just imagine if she's taken alive, uh, Mm. she'll be used against her own cause.
2: Yeah, which is essentially what ends up happening.
1: Really brilliant, Plixa. Thank you. Um, that actually
0: kind of takes mm. us neatly into the next thing. So mm. he actually—it's very quick—but he also uh, disobeys a direct order from a superior to fire, and before, right before the bomb goes off, that same superior, I assume, tackles him to the ground, and because of the protect gear and everything, he sustains minor injuries. Yeah. Uh, and they have that haunting
4: shot of the rubble, and like. She's the girl's just gone. Uh, He sustains minor injuries and they do one of my favorite things where they're like, he was right in front of the bomb. Shouldn't he be more hurt than that? Oh well, he was wearing the armor (laughs) and he he just got by just a few bruises.
2: I mean, they they love the protect gear.
0: Yeah. They treat it a bit like magic, especially in the end scene.
2: Well, yeah, particularly like given that the other like Kerberos things are set much later than this. They never update the design. Mm. It's just, it's just, it's so cool. We're never going to change it.
0: Yeah, it's iconic. I feel like some of the design is a nod to uh, Guts from Berserk because it has the one shoulder with uh, rivets on it and the other one is smooth. And we find that in like a lot of Guts clones like Cloud Strife and
2: yeah,
0: stuff. Yeah. Uh, so there's fallout from this incident, and Fusei is going to be punished for this. He's the scapegoat, right? He's the one who is in front of her. He's the one who failed to fire. Mm. And so there is this God, I just love every fucking scene. So there's these <laughs> high ranking police uh, officers, you know, like commanders and stuff. Hold on one second. I
1: don't know what that is. Okay, thank goodness. That's a phone. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I I have an unpopular opinion. What I saw online was that um, Fusei hesitating was the inciting incident. But I feel like uh, these political leaders in their smoking room meeting right afterward is the inciting incident. Fusei hesitates. Uh, It's an embarrassment for his unit or the agency or whatever. And that's what's exploited that conversation yeah. yeah is what uh that gets our story in motion
2: i think that that gets it like why a lot of why a lot of the negative criticism i saw was like for is boring is that like he's a character who like within the narrative doesn't have a great deal of agency he doesn't like like you said like he doesn't really ask questions he doesn't really answer questions he does what he's told mm-hmm. but that's like that's the point of the character is like he's just doing what he's told because he can't cope otherwise
0: yeah he's not some fantasy action hero like this is the kind of person who does these kinds of things
2: yeah yeah i was gonna say that but like that's the whole point of the character and if you go in expecting like he's a cool cop who's gonna solve the mystery like it doesn't work he basically just does nothing um, he 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 makes a couple of like serious decisions, but he's he's being played the whole time. He's being manipulated. Yeah, and even when he makes choices, the choices that like they're coming from someone else anyway. He's basically just picking sides. He's like a pawn. Yeah.
0: yeah. What's funny is there's a um, a Korean live action remake mm. of this film, which is actually kind of like uh, a couple of story things from uh, related Kerberos stories, like mashed in there. And right. they lose a lot of the point of, like, the character. He's much more John Wick. Even though Ooh. they found an actor who, like, looks a lot like Fusei. <laughs> <laughs> so,
4: so, something that I think is kind of interesting that I think supports the idea that, like, that's who that character is supposed to be is the kanji for Fusei. So the, like, Chinese character in Japanese it literally means, like, to be prostate or to kind of, like be subservient to bow down yeah and and it's so it's interesting so so Jinro is literally like person wolf or like can be like translated as like werewolf Mm -hmm. so his name is it's just one character but if you split up the character it's like the symbol for person and the symbol for dog oh Um, there's Mm -hmm. some kind of cool stuff going on there and I, I think there's a lot of stuff that's kind of like you know being a person versus a beast like mm. who's the little red riding hood in the story who's the wolf but then there's also this thing of like kind of like are you a dog like are you like this subservient animal to the system or people or whatever or are you a beast and you're just mm. like a wolf among people and yeah you really like that theme Mm.
2: that's that's also why like one of the other ones is called stray dog because mm-hmm. it's literally like it's about one of the kerb ross people going rogue mm. it's like he's literally he's a stray dog and throughout like um red spectacles they have this this constant going between dogs and cats and they talk about like we're dogs now but like Japan is run by cats and there's nowhere for dogs to go
0: oh my gosh it is run by cats Nekijiro is
2: right because like oshi is like one of the few he's sort of notorious for being obsessed with dogs in an industry where everyone's obsessed with cats Mm. yeah he loves um basset hounds basset he puts basset hounds in everything
0: and him and i think satoshi khan is also a dog person yeah yeah um they're like the exceptions to the rule in japan or in the animation community
2: Mm. and that's something that's carried through ghost in the shell too where there's just all these like it's literally based on his real life dog where it's like, Bateau and a basset hound. Oh yeah. Just like hanging out and discussing what it means to be human.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Dogs is a theme. So there's this, like you said, Blixa there, there's this uh, inciting incident of these political leaders high-ranking police officers. They are discussing what's going to happen. And you made this excellent point. It's not that all of these people were killed in the sewers that's not the issue the issue is that it's an embarrassment there were explosions in the sewers and it caused a power outage and that's very embarrassing to them because they couldn't maintain public order
3: it was really embarrassing how he couldn't shoot a child you know?
2: <laughs> yes
3: I like how they're like, why didn't he shoot? What's wrong with him?
2: <laughs> that's exactly the point, because that's going on while they're talking about, oh, the terrorists don't care about human life. And the <laughs> terrorists, like, they're using children as pawns in this thing. It's like, that's exactly what they're... Yeah. It's, it's, like, not overtly sarcastic, but the sort of tone of it is just, like, these absolute, like, you know, sociopath people yeah. who are happy to sign papers to have people killed and don't care at all calling everybody else, like, well, they these people don't value human life.
0: Yes. Uh totally. But um, as they are sitting in this room discussing Fusei's future, Fusei is running laps kind of inexplicably outside of this building. And I thought this was your first like hint that Fusei is a wolf, because he's not literally running r- laps around the building, but he's just circling over and over and over so while they're like having their pretty talk he's thinking and staying focused yeah and so they decide that he's going to go in front of a board of inquiry right Tribunal.
2: yeah
0: and they ask him why didn't you shoot and he doesn't have an answer but we get our first kind of repetition in the film which i think this is like one of the main themes is like yeah history repeating itself and events like rippling backwards and forwards through time and one of mamoroshi's favorite things is uh these dream sequences because (laughs) it's like it's so beautifully subtle he's standing in front of this board he's alone in this giant room in front of people who are examining him and then like one cherry blossom floats through the room and then it's a few and then he goes back in his head And he just like revisits this trauma over and over. Yeah. Uh, His punishment is that he's going back to basic training and he's gonna go, because this is not a happy thing to happen. Like it's very rigorous training, it's very painful. And so that's punishment for him. But like, he doesn't fucking care. (laughs) (laughs) And then he has this clandestine meeting, the first one in the film, between him and I guess he's the main antagonist, right? This guy named Henmei. Uh, who is also part of the Capitol Police, but he is on the public security side and not the special unit Kerberos side. And he mentions that Fusei and Henmi were friends during training, but Henmi couldn't hack it physically. Um, But Henmi, like, it's funny because he's, you know, he's an antagonist. He is part of this plot to blame something on the special unit to, I don't know, to further these political ends. But he ends up giving Fusei a bunch of stuff. And like what he gives him here is the name of the girl that killed herself in the
4: sewers. I guess the implication is that Fusei wants to know so he can like pay his respects to her, right? And I I kind of interpreted the, the flashback in the tribunal as like he's having like PTSD flashbacks mm-hmm. about this, right? Like he's, he's kind of disturbed and, and we, we get this characterization of him as a guy who unlike me, you know, he's like the ultimate physical specimen, great at all of the skills, but like, you know, he's at least extremely emotionally closed off and like mm. sort of get the impression maybe like a little bit like kind of like dim witted or something like he talks in these very, Short sentences, and you know, a lot of people kind of refer to him as like a beast.
1: Okay, we are getting into the stuff uh, of why this story is like painful for me. Okay, yeah. Fusei hesitates because he has compassion, Mm. and the smoky room where the officers are talking, you know, it leads to this moment where like Henmai passes on like the name, like the information to Fusei because they know that he's got compassion. Like they know he's going to go to the yeah. site mm. and it's like, he's a broken tool, right? He is not supposed to hesitate. He's just supposed to kill, mm-hmm. but they can still use him like to kill or, or whatever There means in a different way. Mm-hmm. And this is just what I find so horrifying. Yeah. Um, like to be the the type of tool he needs to be, he can't be human. Like he mm-hmm. can't have compassion and it's like worked out of all these other soldiers. Yeah. It's just Different levels of exploitation right yeah Yeah. so he's the odd one among his dogs, but the masters can still find a use for that an exploitative Mm -hmm. use. Yeah, yeah, and like they weaponize his love and compassion. Uh, It's fucking horrifying.
3: And, you know, you bring up a really good point because so far we didn't really see him do anything like overly physical. We didn't see him shoot anyone. And you might think, oh, he's just not good at the gun stuff. Yeah. That's why he didn't shoot. Oh, he's not good. That's why. But that's the opposite. The reason he didn't do it is like you say, because he has compassion, he hesitates because he's, you know, deep down inside, he's a good human, but he's being used to do something that may not be, you know, intrinsically him. Mm
4: -hmm. So, So here's a question, Alex, since you've watched it multiple times recently. So what, what does he actually know at this point? Cause like at the end we find out, oh, he's part of this kind of like secret wolf brigade. And like, you know, he was in on some of this stuff. So, so, like, at this point, is this still kind of like him just being a person or is he... I think that when he goes
0: to her grave and, like, I don't know what this is culturally, it looks like a bunch of lockers. So, like, I didn't know if that was a common thing. Like, maybe that's cremation lockers where her ashes would be stored normally.
2: I think it's that because they, um, later on, like, the the other, um, the other Red Riding Hood, mm-hmm. she talks about, like, I, I brought this to leave with her ashes. Mm-hmm. So I think it's that, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think in the U.S. it would be a mausoleum. A mausoleum, okay. As opposed to a graveyard. Yeah. So he, he goes to pay
0: his respects. I think he is acting on his own accord, his own... You know because i never thought about that that hen is already manipulating him at the beginning there in their first meeting scene like because why does hen give him the thing is it because they were friends in the academy or is it because hen and his superiors have already come up with this plot so i think he goes there of his own accord and then it it pretty quickly after that turns because we meet our second red riding hood ostensibly the older sister of this girl who died in the uh what do you call it the sewers but we learn that that's not true either she's just another person and she is the result of a red riding hood who does not pull the pin and kill herself right Mm -hmm. um she becomes embroiled in this police struggle where like she does not live her own life anymore she has no agency um and in that way the two of them meeting there is this almost instant recognition of something in each other which like plays out through the film there they act as a mirror for one another that like they are both caught in this cycle they have no agency they're both tools of superior officers or whatever
1: yeah it's like
0: deckard and rachel meet yeah
1: exactly so
0: I think it tra- or I think the plot um, changes very quickly, or his relationship with uh, what he's doing with K and stuff changes very quickly, because K gives him a copy of Little Red Riding Hood, the original German version, right? And the very next scene is a narration of the opening lines of Little Red Riding Hood, which is a little different than most people know the story. Like yeah, this story it's has the
2: old Brothers Grimm one. Yeah,
0: so it has this like yeah. precursor where the girl, the little red riding hood, she's like locked in a tower for years. And it's this very Dark Souls, grim-dark, like, how do we start this story? But in this uh, narration of the story is overlaid over the training exercise. And Fusei, he leads this team of recruits into this training exercise. They breach a building, they go, they get into this room, and the Training instructor, I have his name. Hold on. It's he's gonna be important later. Uh Hachiro Tobe. He's the instructor, but he's also their like um uh opponent in this uh, uh training exercise. So they have to reach this room, he lights them up, takes two of them out immediately, and then Fusei very cleverly smashes through a wall because they're like these, you know, it's like particle board, and has his instructor dead to rights again. And then for the second time in the film, he doesn't fire. And the only thing I can think to tie these two, like it has like the image of uh, the girl in the sewer flash. But in addition to that, there is this thing that's tied to him. Like we learn that he knows Hachiro intimately. Hachiro is the one who trained him. He's a commanding officer in the Wolf Brigade so twice now fusei has recognized something in someone else's face i would say like he recognizes a wolf and he doesn't fire and he does the same thing in the sewer he recognizes this girl Mm. and she's not a dog she's not a person either she's a wolf um willing to kill people and do whatever in order to get to her ends right Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, He fails to fire again. The training exercise is a bust. Uh, And then we get this telling scene, which seems like nothing the first time you watch it, of Henmi talking to uh, Hachiro. And it seems like they're talking about nothing. They're just talking about Fusei. But Hachiro is sizing Henmei up. He's trying to figure out who is coming after them, because he knows that this blame being put on Fusei is not just like a coincidence, this is a plot. And Henmei is just trying to get more information about like, how's Fusei doing? Is he unstable? Do you think he'll make it through? And I think that's the moment when it would have like shifted because Hachiro gets this idea that Henmei is part of the plot, and then he probably
4: immediately goes and talks to Fusei. I was going to say, I think Henmei there, one of them, I think it's Henmei, like, asked, like, oh, do you know, is he seeing a girl? Has he, like, said something about that? And so that, you know, that might be the thing that tips off the plot.
3: But if Fusei is smart... The second he meets the sister and she goes, you know what? I don't blame you for killing my sister. (laughs) It's just part of your job. Like I knew he was being played. He should have guessed who was being played, you know? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
4: that was weird.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, I found a perfect waifu. (laughs) Excellent.
0: Yeah. So the, the intrigue has started. Uh, We know some players now and uh, I do, you know, I'll probably say this several times, but like, I do recommend people watch this film more than once because it's one of those where you look back and you're like, Oh, that's happening. Oh my gosh. Even like uh, when he first meets Kay in the, at the grave locker, there's someone who walks by helping out an old lady in the background. And it's one of the Wolf Brigade. Yeah. Like it's someone who has eyes on him and several places in, in several scenes. There's someone who walks by in the background and it's someone that Fuse knows intimately, but he like doesn't pay them any mind because that would give away the plot. Right? So the stage is set. There is this budding romance, like Fuse and Kay, they recognize something in each other. There's some sort of human attraction there and they decide to start spending time together. Uh, and the first thing they do is they go to this playground which is just haunting to me because it's this like little, it's this little cute uh, playground that I'm sure generations of kids have played on. And then it does like some panning shots and you see rubble, like whole buildings gone, which like who knows if that's, you know, a wound that's still in the city from a from the war or if that's like just reconstruction efforts, like
2: clearing away the old skin so that we can
0: have some new growth.
2: Yeah, the first Pat Labour movie is like that for 90 minutes. Mm. It's all about this economic growth, just like removing all of the history from this place and replacing and there's all Mm. these like there's there's these very long montages of just like people sort of walking around cities and you start seeing them from different angles and you start seeing like there's like this old little like like a temple and a little like river but it's being dwarfed by this enormous skyscraper and these huge like overpasses just like overshadowing everything yeah yeah and that becomes like The villain's motivation is to sort of like a response to all of this it's a good villain yeah
1: my impression like since this is a like an alternative 1950s that any reconstruction from World war ii would have been done like when i saw the rubble i was thinking of like northern ireland or like palestine that uh there's just so much social unrest that this is just Mm -hmm. where they they live in a war zone but you know that's not explicitly said yeah well that that makes sense yeah, I had never thought of that before, but like bombs are going off. Yeah.
0: You know, anarchists and people are and other uh, uh leftist organizations are like at their the end of their rope. Like they are increasingly marginalized by
1: these ultra-violent police forces. And I didn't remember any children at that at the playground. No.
2: Oh no. You do see you see quite a few children later on, but they're they're just going about their lives. Like they're playing on like they're just playing on like fences and things. You don't actually see them at the playground, yeah.
4: Yeah, I, I was just going to say. I think one of the things that this movie does really well, you know, it's a lot of conversations, but they pick these kind of interesting like scenes to have them. So we have, and and we come back to these same locations multiple times. So we have kind of a couple pivotal scenes on the roof of this playground. We've got like the the museum where they're like standing in front of the wolves. We've got the the sewers, um, and you know it's something I think you see sometimes in in film noir. And I think this is in many ways kind of like a noir story. Very right. having these just like these very memorable locations where a conversation happens. I think when you think back about the movie, that kind of helps you remember and kind of keep these different parts of it distinct. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you mentioned the the rooftop um,
0: because there's this, I think, wonderfully subtle juxtaposition because we go from a for pretty mundane playground and that's like a public thing, right? That's a public facility. Everyone has access to it, but there are no children there, like you said. And then the next place they go to is a rooftop ultra-modern for the time, amusement park. It has an arcade, it has space rocket ride, It like there, and that is very populated. So we show subtly like, we're going from this communal uh, space idea to this privatized yeah. money-based thing. There's this one shot, which I think is kind of the thesis shot for this section of the film is we see this little boy who loses a balloon and he's just like distraught and Kay like sees him and is like, oh, it's okay. And it's very nice to him, but it feels like the loss of childhood because these two characters, Fusei particularly, because he seems a Mm -hmm. little bit older than Kay, he grew up during the war. It's not like he was a participant in the war,
1: but his childhood (laughs) was trauma, was violence, right? I suspected that the scene was a setup that the kid was put there for Fusei to watch this theater play out.
0: Mm -hmm. You think the kid is a plant?
1: Yeah. I think this is all playing on Fusei's compassion. That
3: would make sense because he was uh, looking at her, like uh, take care of the kid. And he even Mm -hmm. had like a flashback to what happened in the sewers, but she was the victim. So it really messed with him.
2: The other thing though, about that scene is like Fusei sees the kid fall and like drop the balloon and he doesn't do anything he mm-hmm. just looks like completely powerless he just stands there and stares while this thing happens and Kay is the one that has to run over
1: yeah so i think we're seeing his trauma response he freezes mm-hmm. like mm. was it third time mm. now
2: mm. yeah
0: that's
1: brilliant
0: oh you're thank you all for being here um, we're
2: talking also like like this is a noir There there seem to be a lot of callbacks to the third man in this. I don't know if people have seen that. I don't know. it. It's it's an Orson Welles noir set in um, post-war Vienna. And it's Hmm. all about people going back and forth through the sewer system to sort of because the the city was divided. Oh. Divided politically. It's like Berlin or something. And then the only way you can get around is through the sewers, all these scenes in sewers. And also like um, balloons are an important part of the third man as well. And I think it's probably calling back like that may have been mm. it may be like a, an influence there.
0: Yeah. And um, and then I my last note about this scene is that uh, I love the use of fences as cages. Mm. And so they have several shots like this, you know, the the playground which represented like more of their childhood. It's it's free, you know? There's no there's no fences around it. You can just walk in and out. But this amusement park, you know, obviously it makes sense because it's on top of this building. So you have to have like f- you know, sturdy guardrails so people don't just fall off and die. Mm -hmm. But uh, several of the shots, it shows like Kay or Fusei behind this fence and showing like they have no way out. They are caught in this cycle. They cannot escape, Mm -hmm. which is kind of foreshadowing later because we will have this plan of maybe we could run away together. But if you're paying attention, you're like that that's not real. That's not a real possibility. Uh, And then it goes into he see like she helps this kid and uh, Fusei seeing her help the kid. He has another flashback and we get the most vivid dream sequence yet. Um, Probably the most disturbing and vivid one of the film, um, because this is the one where, wait, is this the one where he's part of the pack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, He sees both Kay and the girl, uh, Nanami, and I love that in the dream sequence, their faces just shift back and forth willy-nilly, because to Fusei, to the narrative, these are the same character, yeah. right? She and the the dream Kay says this really beautiful, heartbreaking line. She goes through this gate, and he's like up at the gate, like, trying to get as close to her as he can, and she says, you can't come with me you know that it's not allowed. Um, and it's just a dream sequence, but mm. like we will see this play out soon. And the dream sequence is so intense, the uh, the wolves actually get through this gate and eat, uh, eat the girl yeah. alive um, in this really yeah. disturbing visceral shot. Torn apart. Yeah. Yes, and I didn't notice this until I talked about it with you once, Blixa, but there's one shot between the girl's legs and there's like a wolf foot between the legs. Mm. And the the legs like contract in almost in a sexual manner. It's very uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. Um, and it uh, oh, another one of the themes that I found emergent in this is consumption, and specifically consumption of female bodies. Yeah, which is you know it's it's emphasized here with this dream sequence of K, but later we also get you know both the the Red Riding Hood story of eating uh, consuming the mother but we liken the mother later to um japan itself Mm. the nation as a mother and the consumption of it under this re Mm. well yeah
2: I, i think like that's something that um again going back to people who said like it was slow and they didn't care about the characters is like there's all these montage sequences where like Maybe someone's talking over them, but the action is connected, like not literally, but thematically. Mm-hmm. And um, again, like we've talked about, that's something that Oshi does a lot. Um, these feel a lot more like verité than when Oshi does it, because Oshi tends to just—Oshi's quite expressionist in the montages, lots just like shots of buildings and stuff. For us, this this feels more like like this is documentary footage from the street. Yeah, and you see a lot of just like people huddled around and like. There's a shot that's very memorable, like these two women who are with their husbands. Husbands are obviously the ones working. The women are trying to talk to each other, and then in the background, there's this couple sort of huddled under a window of a shop and things like that. And you see like like people walking by, but from the perspective of people in a in an alleyway and stuff like that. That doesn't affect the plot. That doesn't affect the story of the Wolf Brigade. But it's it's so important to what the film is saying, and if yeah. If you come at it thinking it's going to be a police procedural, obviously you're not going to pick up on that. You're going to think it's slow. Yeah.
4: So so with this um with this dream sequence of the wolves eating K. so so at this point, Fuse, like, do we think Hachiros talked to Fuse and Fusei's in on it? And this is like him being like, Oh, I'm going to open the gate and let these wolves like it's like his like guilt about what is to come exactly
0: yeah because even if hachiro has spoken to him about this what he's probably said is okay you have to keep doing this you have to keep seeing her you have to keep this plot going
1: because it's the only way that we will reverse it and catch them in our own trap so i need to defend this the dream sequence here uh this was another thing that received some criticism i guess it was on the anime's news network forums the criticism was like okay this didn't need to be sexualized like we didn't need to see as much skin it need to, didn't need to be as provocative. And I don't think that was fan service. I don't think no. anyone here received it that way. No. When I was watching this, I was like, uh, this isn't just someone getting killed. It's a violation. Yeah. And it's not just like, like a trauma flashback because she's not in like the clothes when she was in the sewers uh, during the riot, she's not holding the satchel. She's like in a summer dress. Mm-hmm. It's like, Innocence and like the destruction of it, like the irreverence, and I had to wonder who was the girl really. Like it looks like K or an amalgam, mm-hmm. but um, what's the innocence that's being disregarded and consumed and torn apart?
0: Yeah, you know it's so evocative. Like I, it makes me wonder if somewhere in Fusei's past, there's no answer to this unless Momoroshi wrote something else with this in there. But in Fusei's past, like was there a girl? Like, hmm. did he see someone uh, get shot? Because we we also see cut back and forth between this consumption of uh, the girl's body. We also see a Kerberos officer, presumably Fuse, firing like she's up against the wall. And it's the most disturbing use of violence that I think in the film, because like, just real quick, I love the use of violence in this film because it's exceptionally animated and it's all super ugly Mm -hmm. because you see what a bullet does to a body Mm -hmm. and it's just horrible
3: yeah it's not glamorizing violence it's like the opposite yeah
0: Mm -hmm. and this is like an extended shot that it cuts back and forth from of just unloading an entire clip Mm -hmm. uh, into one person's body who's just stood up against a wall
4: Mm
1: -hmm. (sighs) sorry this is a lot that's why I had a hard time with this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of it's hard to watch.
2: It's, like, it's significantly more violent than the live action ones, which is interesting. Like it feels more real. I don't know if he's, either of you seen live the live action ones. The live action ones a bit like they they play out kind of like Lupin the Third. Like they're very very heightened. And like something that's not um that's not like in this is that the um. What are they called? The f- the one that's opposed to Kerberos, again, like the public...
3: The public security? or Public
2: security. Public security have their own, like, military unit and their mimes. They're guys in white face makeup and they, like, oh, they wow. pose weirdly. And it's, like, it's so heightened and it's so strange. And then to go from that to, like, Jinro, which is so raw but is animated, it's, it's extremely strange. Hmm. How did you get a hold of these films? Oh, um, I was just big into Oshi in my early 20s. And um, I do not remember, I think they were on Amazon because eBay would not have been super like on my radar at that point. I think I got them on Amazon. It was a set. It was it was these two and um, another one he did called Talking Head. It's not, it's not connected. It's like a very strange, like, absurdist comedy set on a soundstage. And it was the three of them together with the, the soundtrack of Stray Dog. Well, I'm trying to put the timeline together
1: in my head. So, like, Jinro was produced in 99? Yeah,
2: yeah. From memory, this is, like, 87, 88, and this is 91. Oshii made these because he got fed up with working in anime. Oh, wow. I think he, w- from memory, like, he was frustrated with Angel's Egg not doing well. Because Angel's Egg like, had not done well commercially. And then he just, like, he, I think he wasn't getting the funding or something to make more anime. So he just left to make live action stuff. Yeah. And then he was going, he was ready to do the third Kerberos one as live action. And then pet labor became really big. So he sort of got dra- dragged back into anime and Ghost in the Shell. And that's why there's mm. that massive, there's like 10 year gap between Stray Dog and genra.
4: So it gets, um, jumping back to it. So after that, Dream sequence, uh, that's when we as the audience kind of find out that Henmi and Kay are communicating and and this other plot is going on. You know, so we've had the Red Riding Hood story kind of superimposed on top of shots of them. And she's kind of telling the story, but the wolves' lines, he'll say the wolves' lines. And I think at this point in the movie... Then she starts saying the wolves lines and we see her at the museum standing in front of the wolves and kind of you're like, oh, she's the wolf and he's little red riding hood is kind of, yeah. I guess what you're thinking. I guess we know that they're now having watched the whole thing that there's kind of this extra layer on top of it all.
2: Mm hmm. I think that's that's why specifically they use that very old Red Riding Hood story. It's like a very old like Brothers Grimm version called "The Girl in Iron Clothes," and they make this whole point about like before she she's trapped in this iron suit, she's trying to break out of, which like kind of makes her say trapped in the protect gear. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then of course at the end, like he he breaks out of it and then he puts it back on again, and it's like this was all pointless.
3: It's like reverse equilibrium.
2: Oh my gosh
0: equilibrium yeah. great movie what if the matrix and 1984 mm. and brave new world were all the same story <laughs>
1: mm. okay well i'm glad this got brought up i kept thinking of Fuse as like in the children's story little red riding hood like the iron coat thing was weird to me i never heard it before yeah. it fit but gosh i've got so much speculation here <laughs> but i think of Fuse as like a war orphan like mm-hmm. World War II happens he wasn't old enough to be a soldier where his parents probably dead what happens to war orphans like especially in like Japan the little girls become prostitutes and the boys become either a part of organized crime or something terrible mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what likes kind of fit to me
4: I feel like that would make sense with the kind of emotional stunting and that yeah yeah
1: of- yeah in this Little Red Riding Hood story the girl hasn't seen her mother in 10 years or something like that yeah and is hopeful. That sounds like Fousey to me, not like trying to see his mom, but like all of a sudden there's a special lady. And well, I mean, when we lose someone,
0: especially in a traumatic event, we oftentimes look for a surrogate. Mm -hmm. So like he may not be thinking consciously of Kay as a mother figure, but like, that's definitely something that he wants. He yearns for
3: yeah.
0: Um, and he sees that, like, she does have some of these motherly instincts, oh, unless she doesn't and it's all just yeah. a ploy yeah. with the kid with the balloon.
3: But you know, earlier you were talking about the summer dress and who is that woman that he sees in the vision. Maybe he did see his mother being, being murdered or oh something. Oh, my God.
0: Oh, <laughs> you just unlocked it. That's
4: dark. <laughs> wow. He's Batman. Yeah basically. <laughs> that's he puts on the iron suit.
3: Oh my god. <laughs> oh my gosh. There's actually this scene before the conspiracy is revealed where him and her are like outside and it's raining and it's cold and he doesn't give her his coat. Yeah. Like, what's up with us?
0: Right, like he's missing some sort of an empathetic yeah. response. Well, he, right? he
2: does later on.
3: Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, but yeah. here, he, it's clearly like there's like fumes or whatever, you know, the cold thing coming out of her mouth. Mm-hmm. So she's cold and she's like playing it up. And he's like, yeah. no.
2: It's it's like it's like the balloon. Like he just yeah. doesn't.
4: We gotta share character development. Right. Yeah, that's true.
0: He develops, but we also see that maybe it's making a point that like these kinds of kindnesses, they are learned behaviors. You have to see mm-hmm. them modeled before you do them, mm-hmm. right? And he hasn't had this model. I feel so sorry for Fuse. Yeah. He's just a stray dog. Uh I'm going to help him. So they have this day together um, where he doesn't give her the coat. And then the next scene is the meeting between Henmei and his commanding officer and some police officials from the local police. Uh, Now that we're kind of distant from the war and everything, uh, there are some people within the police that think that The Capitol Police should be dissolved because there are two. There is a dual power structure here, Capitol Police and local police, and each of them claims uh, jurisdiction. And so that can cause a lot of friction between organizations and the Capitol Police don't want to go away. So the public uh, security division, they have concocted this plot along with the local police to frame someone from the special unit so that they can get rid of Kerberos But keep the capital police as a power structure, which is like, you know, all power organizations, they want to keep themselves alive. Like that's kind of the nature of power, is the ability to replicate itself. And so they have this meeting. The the local police just they seem like cowards. They're like, we we don't want any of this to get out in the open, like that. We were part of this. And you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. (laughs) Like, you're dumb. But we see the very end of the scene is the telling part where Henmi gets into the car. And as you said, Ben, that's when we learn explicitly that Henme and Kay are in cahoots. They are talking to each other. And not only are they in cahoots, but like she is on a tight leash. Yeah. She does everything Henmi tells her to do.
1: I don't remember what scene it was when she's, you would assume, in her apartment and gets a phone call.
3: Oh, yeah, that's before that, yeah.
1: And... I felt like it was like her handler giving her her orders because yeah. like the apartment is empty. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yes. Bare. There isn't even a chair. She lays down on the floor in supine position, mm. like, like a war orphan, mm. like someone who has no comfort. And there's something, I don't know, there's something very strange to me about a phone on the floor. Mm. I don't know what it is, but it like just hits my brain in this interesting mm. way.
3: Um, speaking of the phone, has anybody seen the audition?
2: with the the Takeshi Miike.
3: The Takeshi Miki movie. I just wanted to show you a picture. Um, oh yeah, please. That like popped back in my mind when I was when I saw the scene with the phone on the floor. Uh, how do I control V? I'm not or is it? I'm bad with PCs. I'm a Mac girl.
0: <laughs> Let me Oh, me too. Blix it too. Oh, they're on a Mac.
3: I don't know. It just reminded me of that because this is also a disturbing movie. Mm. It's just like, I oh. don't know, this image has like <laughs> imprinted in my mind forever, ever since I saw
1: it. Why so. do you have that image on hand? No, no,
3: I just Googled oh it. God. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. you know, people have memes. I have this phone image. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's how she falls asleep every night, staring at this photo.
1: <laughs> ah.
0: ah. Okay, Sin, I need all your recommendations for movies, and I mean forever. Good. <laughs> okay so we have this great scene of her in an empty apartment with a yeah. uh, phone um fuse received photos of the clandestine meeting mm-hmm. so now we know that fuse knows that k is part of the plot mm-hmm. he's probably been briefed on it by hachiro but this is like okay well if i had any doubts in my mm-hmm. mind now mm-hmm. i know what's going on yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he gets these photos, then we have the scene of her in the empty apartment. She receives a phone call, and then uh, her and Fuse spend one more day together. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, when we get the trolley scenes, or maybe yeah. that's when they're on the rug.
2: There's a few trolley scenes.
0: There's a lot of trolley yeah, scenes.
2: Yeah.
0: But he re-
3: actually, he receives the photos after the meeting. They already had their date. They meet in the museum after.
0: Oh, yeah. okay, cool. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So they spend this one more day together. And then uh, Fusei has uh, another meeting with uh, Henmi. Well, Fusei goes and he practices at the shooting range, which you're like, oh, I guess that's what he does in his spare time (laughs) when he's not staring at a wall. Mm -hmm. And Henmi comes in and is like, hey, how's it going? (laughs) And he's, you know, Fusei is very straight faced, Mm -hmm. like not going to betray anything Mm -hmm. in this scene. And Henmi tries to like goad him along. He he says some stuff that seems like it would be getting Fusei to do something, but knowing that it's part of the plot, it just sounds to me like Henmi is giving away his position. He's like essentially telling Fusei, "Hey, I'm part of the opposition." (laughs) Uh, And then we go to Fusei. uh, We get this beautiful shot of a full moon, Mm -hmm. which is obviously we're dealing with wolves and wolf people and the moon also symbolizing like a time of change or like, I love like in Sekiro, Mm -hmm. the the opening is a full moon night and then the ending is a full moon night. And you're just like, this is when things happen. This is when the world changes.
3: And you know, by this time, because Fusei has been compared to a wolf so much, you're like, I heard the words Wolf Brigade dropped a couple of times. I don't know what it is, but he's definitely part of it. So people yes. better not mess with him because something's going down.
0: Yeah, and we you're absolutely right because we then get, uh, we've been waiting to see kind of what Fuse can do this whole time. Mm-hmm. And now we get our answer. So he's performing gun maintenance. He gets a call and Kay is like, should be frantic should be like, oh my God, this is happening. You have to come help me. But instead she calmly delivers these lines. She's like, "Uh, you have to come get me. I am here. Like, I'm gonna be surrounded by people, please Mm Fousey. And he doesn't need to hear anything else. He goes to his room. He takes a gun out of a secret book, which, you know, that's like shorthand for spy or something. Mm -hmm. But he very specifically takes the gun out Puts it back and decides not to take a firearm Mm -hmm. with him. Which, like, I guess that's just supposed to be like, hey, check out what a badass this guy is. Because I couldn't think of any other motivation.
3: But he's been having a hard time shooting
0: people.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's true. So.
0: Yeah. He's just worried about performance anxiety.
1: (laughs) What if he just knows this is all theater? Hmm. Like, she's doing her part of this thing, and he's expected to do his part, and he doesn't really need to take those kind of precautions. Cause this is what has been decided is going to happen. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's brilliant because he takes the book out, looks at the gun, then he puts it in a drawer and in the same drawer is one more book and that's little red riding hood. So it's like, he decides like, is this real? Does it need a gun? Or is this a story? And he, mm-hmm. he makes mm-hmm. that decision. He's like, no, this is, I'm part of this story. This is just another repetition of the cycle. I will not need this gun.
3: Interestingly enough, though, he still could have chosen to bring the gun if sure. he's like, "Hey, I'm gonna, you know, nobody's gonna blame me for anything because the the Wolf Brigade has my back."
4: But but he does mm. like kind of make a point of not killing the people when he's yeah him, right. Like he knocks a guy out True. and then creates a distraction. And
0: oh yeah, so the only time he kills people in the film is when he's with the rest of the pack.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yep. There it is. So he jumps out the window and slides down a gutter. Like it's nothing. He climbs up a chain link fence and which I love that it's like the same style fence as the one at the um, amusement park. And so we see like, you know, that looks like it's really caging him in, but when he's actually working, when he's doing his thing, he just fucking, like he does this weird like twist in the air thing yeah i wonder if it's humanly possible but uh it looks really stellar Mm -hmm. and the place that the the framing the the caught him in the act is supposed to happen is this museum we've been to this museum before Mm -hmm. and the part of it that we're going to spend time in is a exhibit of it looks like predators so there's like Wolves and bears and some birds that I'm sure are really known for eating huge fish. And this time, before, when we first met um, Henmi, we saw uh, Fuse uh, standing in front of this pack of wolves, right? Like, Mm -hmm. showing us that he is part of this. And then this time, like you said, I think uh, Ben said, uh, Kay is now in front of these wolves, showing us Mm. that Mm. she is like this. Like, either... Fusei is not the wolf that we think he is and that K is the wolf or that they are both simultaneously playing both of these roles. Mm-hmm. So he does this cool action stuff. If anybody's been waiting for this to be an action film, this is the time But there's this, when he's almost to her, there's one guard left on her. We get this wonderful juxtaposition of this big guy, this like physically imposing guy with a gun, and he is scared out of his mind, sweating Mm -hmm. bullets. But Kay is standing perfectly still, perfectly calm in front of this wolf case.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So Fuse gets Kay, they make their escape, and then they spend like, It seems like some borrowed time, especially the first time you're watching through the film. You're like, oh, like everything is bad, but this is actually kind of sweet
4: because Mm
0: -hmm. they avoid a bunch of like police blockades and they make their way through side roads and stuff. And they just, even though it's mostly silent, they just spend time with each other again, right? And the climax, the emotional climax of the scene at least, is when they make their way up to uh, the amusement park that they spent time in before. And now it's at night and everything is dark and it's a whole different feeling to the place. And this is where we get one of the most compelling and confusing things for me in the film. This is when they talk about maybe there's a chance that maybe they could run away together. They could just like leave this all behind, right? And they sit down next to the fence, you know, emphasizing that they're still trapped. And uh, Fousey this time gives Kay his jacket because she's cold. Mm -hmm. It's at night again. And they they share their one kiss for the film. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And it's this slow, quiet moment in this, you know, maelstrom of violence and like plotting. And I just wonder, I wonder how real the kiss is for each of them. Like, I want to think as a movie watcher, I want to be like, that's it, that's real, that's love. Mm -hmm. But like, is it? You know, both of them are brought to this point not by their own agency because they're pawns from someone else's game. So like, how real is even this kiss?
2: Well, they they talk about it like in that scene where she's talking like why she's doing it. And Mm -hmm. she basically just says it was easier. Yes, and this mirrors him, right? yeah yeah but like basically she's someone who like would have she could have killed herself or she could have faced the consequences of what she did, but she chose to be she chose to work with the police instead,
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, and it's this sense of like we're just going along this path because it's it's for us it's the path of least resistance, even though we know it's wrong,
0: yeah,
3: yeah. And they're very similar in that way where they're both mm. following orders. They're both playing their role and their part. And I think they both realize it on some level that they're kind of just lying to each other. It's like a yeah. dis- if there is love, it's a very dysfunctional one, you know?
4: Yeah, it's interesting. So the thing about running away, I mean, she talks about it in this scene, but she mentioned it in the earlier scene too. And, or, or, you know, she talks about, yeah, like kind of, you can see so far into the distance. I just like dream of like going to this place where I don't know anyone. And I sort of feel like that is a, a genuine thing. I mean, she does feel trapped in this situation. I think the same way he feels trapped in this situation. And, you know, I wonder if those things... I think the things that we've mentioned already are true, but I feel like you could also just be like attracted to someone in that situation and like dream of being in a different life where you could actually just, you know, like have this relationship. But then there's like the reality of the situation where that's not a real option. Hmm. They can't actually hmm. escape and and kind of just like live anonymously or whatever. I guess, what does he say? He says, I still have some things I need to do. (laughs) What does that mean?
0: Yeah, I, I really like the way you put that. It's almost like they, or it is that it's not real, like this relationship that they have. But that doesn't mean that they don't wish it was real, and and this this kiss, this quiet moment, is the manifestation of that
1: desire.
0: Mm-hmm. Ugh. Okay, you're all so fucking cool.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. So maybe it's not love, but like intimacy. Even if it's not love, is mm-hmm. something connecting. Even to yeah. some degree, is something. Like they gotta have miserable, lonely lives. Uh, And they're always being watched. Like we have all those scenes
0: where there's one of the wolf brigade in the background watching them, or, you know, probably one of Henmei's people watching them from the side. And this is maybe the only scene where it's at night. They broke into a building. There's no one around. We're sure that they're alone. And this is what happens. Okay. We have our little beautiful moment we get our respite from the horror of living. Everything has to come back, though. We have to come back to where we started. And like most of my favorite films, this, this movie ends where it begins in a trolley car
4: yeah (laughs) but but we do get this great scene where there's like the roadblocks and then you see the trolley car and you're like they're in the trolley car and (laughs) to them in the trolley trolley car i don't know made all those earlier trolley cars worth it
0: oh that's true yeah they were Mm -hmm. like hey if you were paying attention (laughs) yeah so they get past blockades uh they take this trolley and they come to a sewer entrance but this time it's like a gate that they pass through and one, like, you know, they're passing through this gate symbolically. They're like, this is a point of no return. And this is like where a climax will happen, but also it's either the same gate or so visually similar that I can't tell them apart. It's the one from his dream. Yeah. And instead of the wolf kind of like peeking its nose in this time, this time it's Fusei that opens the door.
3: And like the whole wolf back is there, like his friends.
0: Yeah. And they get into the sewer and Kay's like, what are we doing here? And then people just show up from every direction in the sewer. Mm-hmm. She's like, what's going on? And Fusei has no words for her anymore. He is in kill mode so he he just like quietly starts readying himself and putting on the one uh outfit of protect gear that his comrades just brought to him and so Fusei won't talk but instead we get hachiro sits down with k and kind of explains the whole thing to her Mm -hmm. and he's like you know You may have thought that there was like, you were part of this plot, but you're actually in the trap. Mm -hmm. Oh, and he takes, uh, she has a satchel, which is supposed to be like one of the bombs, right? And he roots around in one of the pockets and he finds a little tracker. And she's like, well, yeah, I like she ostensibly knew that was there, Mm -hmm. but he knew it was there. They counted on it being there. Which is like a great counterintelligence reveal because it explains things to you, but not in like a ham-fisted way. It like shows you the pieces and then it lets your brain put them together.
3: And what I find interesting here is that she knew the tracker was there. So even though she has feelings for him, she still led her people to him to perhaps get him killed. So it's like,
2: oh.
0: Yeah, like that's a perfect point. Like, even though these feelings may be real, they are still trapped. They cannot save each other. Uh, Hachiro explains that Fusei is part of uh, the Wolf Brigade, a secret organization that has been part of the special unit who knows how long, because there's one offline where someone says like, oh, well, Commander uh, Honda, who is someone we never get the name to the face, but I think we do see Commander Honda he set up counterintelligence organizations for gate Spy, which presumably was the occupation force. Yeah. And so these counterintelligence officers, they've been working since before, like the nation was rebuilt. And so we get our action climax here, which is, you know, wonderfully animated. It's really disturbing. Um, and we see essentially a pack of wolves hunting a pack of dogs. Uh, Henmei comes with a bunch of heavily armed for what they can get public security officers. And it is just shot after shot of Fusei stalking these people through the sewers. And like, (laughs) it's just beautiful and gross, right?
4: Mm -hmm. This is also here we get kind of like, he reveals his true self to her in some ways, which is like him putting on this armor and like, there's a scene where he's like holding the gun straight at her. And then she she has this scene that like, I don't know, I mean, maybe it could be her putting it on because she thinks it'll somehow save her life. But to me, it reads as very real where she's like basically like apologizing to him, but just being like, what was I supposed to do? Like, I didn't want to betray you. I did want to run away with you. what what was I supposed to do? You're you're the one who betrayed me not the yeah. not the other way around I don't know I believed her maybe I'm just a, a sucker and she's the wolf
1: well she sheds real tears yeah like going back to that moment before the kiss yeah and maybe she's a great actress
4: but
0: it, everything about the the choreography of the scene I agree with you I think it's a, a real breakdown Mm -hmm. because she realizes that they're at the end game and there's no use for pleasantries or acting anymore. And so she gives voice to her actual understanding and feelings of the situation. Totally agree with you, Ben. And she has this one poignant fatalistic line. And she says, if only we had died together, then we could be together, Mm -hmm. like, you know, just the two of us. Like it has a certain morbid logic to it, but it's this like horrifying sentiment of like, that's the only way to really be with someone is to like die with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we get the Wolf's Brigade makes quick work of the public security unit, even though they have like explosives. One of them has a, a rifle mounted grenade, which is like some heavy firepower. And then even Henmei at the end, he has a fucking grenade pistol, which is like very new technology for the time. But he corners Henmei and Henmei talks to him. And he says, he has this realization, which maybe it's a little bit more for the audience than for the scene. But he says to him like, you never had to be told what to do, did you Fusei? You never had to ask any questions you knew what you were doing you were part of this the whole time you know maybe you were like a pawn of your organization but you were part of that plan and i i love when a piece of action and an emotional climax coincide and so he like just like Kay, uh down on her knees giving voice to these feelings he is giving voice to like his frustration Because they've known each other for a long time and everything that Henmei's not good at, that's what Fusei's good at. Um, And so obviously he's probably compared himself to Fusei over and over in his head over the years. And so he finally like lets loose how angry he is, how much he hates Fusei because he's this mirror and he fires this grenade pistol and screams at the same time. And I just love the confluence of action.
4: Yeah. And I think the other difference between them is that, you know, I, I think I think there's this question of, like, who has humanity, who doesn't? And, mm. and you know, like, one of the differences is that, like, Fusei is the guy who hesitates, who, like, he's not as willing to just, like, kill and, like, use people as pawns, even though, like, in these other ways, maybe he's, like, you know, less less refined or smart or seems less human to a lot of these people, they kind of like refer to him as this like beast or animal.
1: Mm -hmm.
4: I
0: mean, you're so right. And Henmei is the mirror, the opposite side of that. He's not accustomed like shooting people, but he in a heartbeat sells out his supposedly his friend, right? Mm -hmm. Like from the beginning of the story, the first time we meet Henmei, he's already trying to manipulate Fusei. And I don't know that we could say that Fusei hesitates there, but Fusei lets Henmei shoot first.
4: I wonder if you go back to that earlier combat scene in the, the sewers, is that always true? Does he only mm-hmm. shoot the people that shoot at, at him first? Is that like his, his thing?
0: I would have to go back and look, but you bring up an interesting point. When he's stalking through the sewer, he does usually take fire first yeah. and then retaliate.
3: Do you think that's some sort of a death wish almost? Like, well, maybe if they shoot me in the suit, because the suit isn't perfect, right? It's right. almost perfect. Maybe he's like hoping, maybe this is what takes me out. And it doesn't, so he continues. Maybe this time it takes me out, you know?
4: And it, Yeah, I was thinking about that with that line of like, oh, if we had just like died together, then it would like mean something. And you, I was kind of like, oh, is that like what he wishes when that bomb went off at the beginning? That like, <laughs> he could have been together mm. with that. That first woman that he like. Oh,
0: right. Because symbolically, they're the same woman. Yeah. Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah, I think it's in that sewer scene too that we first see him from behind wearing that suit where we do see, you know, it's not invulnerable armor, but like the leg back of his legs are like uncovered. we just see the Mm -hmm. leg it's very kind of like achilles heel or (laughs) definitely
0: and there's almost a throwaway line but when he's after the training exercise that they fail when the drill sergeant is yelling at them he makes special note to say like the protect gear has blind spots it only works if your squad is covering you
1: Mm -hmm.
0: okay well we come to our ending there's this amazing shot of machine gun rounds rippling through standing water so it creates this like wave effect as uh, as he kills henmi right oh and there's this wonderful henmi's running away from him and he goes down this like incline loses his footing and he finally comes to what should be a a big opening somewhere for him to escape
1: mm-hmm. but it's
0: a giant doorway that's been bricked over mm-hmm. like Awesome. Just this like beautiful visual end of the line moment. So Henry dies. The action is over. Now there's just the cleanup and we get one final scene of Hachiro, Fusei, one more Wolf Brigade member and Kay. And we get another repetition. We're in the junkyard uh, where this plot was kind of solidified between uh, the public security division and the local police. And Hachiro gives Fuse a choice. He's like, "Hey, do you want to leave the pack? Because you can. That is a choice you can make. But you understand that if you leave the pack, you're not a wolf anymore. You have to start living like a human. And that's too much for Fusei, right? Fuse knows that K is going to die either way. Um, if he doesn't shoot K, then this other guy is going to shoot K." for the for the political game, the the assurance. Right. And so Fousey has to make this choice uh, whether he wants to change his life or not, um, because he does have compassion. Obviously, he doesn't enjoy killing people. And then Kay breaks down again or tries to reason with him again or just makes it as hard as possible and starts quoting the the final lines of Little Red Riding Hood. You know, it's a little overdramatic, maybe even a little melodrama-y, but structurally, it's, it's absolutely perfect because we're coming to the end of our story and we're telling multiple stories on top of each other. We're repeating the same story over and over, right? This, this whole story is, in a way, just a retelling of Little Red Riding Hood. Mm-hmm. Um, so she says the final lines and then he shoots her after this wonderful shot where he bears his fangs. And then it's over. And he's left there with nothing but his place in the pack. And Hachiro has this haunting line, only in the stories that men tell does the hunter kill the wolf in the end. Which, I don't know, that line runs through my head about once a month. <laughs> because I think about like a story I'm being told, and then I think about the perspective I'm being, it's being told from. And I'm like, oh, is this true? Like, am I getting yeah. the real story?
4: Yeah, and 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 so I guess in in that mm-hmm. Grimm's Little Red Riding Hood, my my memory of it is so the wolf eats the girl, and then a hunter comes along, finds the wolf, kills the wolf, cuts the stomach open, and rescues the girl and the mother. Or something like that, or it, maybe there's an extra.
2: Thing. It it there's so yeah. many different versions. Yeah,
3: yeah, Ben, yeah. you have the Disney version,
4: I believe. <laughs> something <laughs> or like he like feeds stones to I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a lot yeah. of different versions, yeah. right? But but so there there is this longer version of the story, but in this story, that's as far as we tell it. It's like this it gets to the right. wolf, and then that's that's the end of this story, right?
0: Yeah, this version of the story is not being told by men. It is being told by wolves. The narration at the beginning of the film is Hachiro. And so the the narrator or the superstructure of the uh, of the story is being narrated by a wolf. And then we get our final shot of the movie, which is the copy of Little Red Riding Hood in a puddle on the ground, which, like, I don't have some great meaning to that, but I do love that as the closing shot, this just slow fade on the storybook, almost like closing the book, right? Mm. And we get this swelling of this absolutely haunting female vocalist um singing the very iconic, well to me iconic um main theme to the film. And that is that's our movie. That's Jinro. <laughs> it is Definitely one of my favorite films. Mm. It may be my favorite animated film. And I cannot recommend enough that people watch it and watch it multiple times. Um, yeah. Obviously, only watch it if you have somewhat of a strong stomach for violence. Because it is not Marvel
1: Disney violence. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have a strong stomach for existential pain. Yeah.
3: You know, after I watched this, I imagine this one person in like the I guess admin section who's like oh my god I'm gonna get written up for this and you know his friends like what did you do well listen the secret um the public security division had this whole plot they put me in charge of to mess with the Kerberos people and I was supposed to pick the person they would target and I picked the only person who's in the wolf brigade <laughs>
0: They're like, we need someone to frame. And Henry's like, I know just the guy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and also, like, um, this is, we mentioned, well, this is a prequel. This is one of the first, like, kind of canonical things in this Khabarov saga. Mm-hmm. All of this happens to keep the Capitol Police Khabarov unit together. Mm-hmm. But then it, if you keep watching it, they'll eventually be disbanded anyway. Uh-oh. So this whole thing was just like... It bought them like a couple, it bought them like 20 years. And then after that, it just fell apart anyway.
1: Yeah. Okay. Are we ready to like get into like more disturbing stuff about this? J- sure, I guess. Do, <laughs> yes. do you have some? All right. So I watched this movie and the, the scene of the children's book uh, in the puddle, it's discarded. It's trash, mm. but it was their story yeah. and it didn't matter. Yeah. Their lives didn't matter. And like when they were descending into the sewers and they passed the rubble where the first girl was killed, he just walks right through without noticing and she sees the blood and has to walk over it. Like her life didn't matter. Mm. And like all these people are just puppets in the play of like these people playing for power. It is horrifying because I feel like this has happened and is probably going to happen again. This story It's in the context of like authoritarian powers and like that shit is getting traction in American politics. You know, we have evangelical nationalists trying to reinforce like authoritarianism, like in the family unit, in your community, like in politics. And like it leads to this, this storybook in the puddle and, and lives not mattering because what matters is the agenda.
2: Yeah. And to the people involved in that, like when they talk about why they're doing it, it's because it's easier. Because you don't have to think if you just go along with it.
1: I still feel bad for Fusei. Yeah. yeah. Like a dog doesn't have a choice. Doesn't have. It doesn't matter what is important or valuable to the dog because the master can just take it away at will. And I just was just rewatching that last scene when he was getting ready to put down, like a dog, this woman he loved. Hmm. Like I think he loved her. Uh, it was agonizing. Yeah and it wasn't just killing her it was killing the last remnants of his compassion so now he's a good dog yeah he's the type of dog that they need yeah and And they won yeah
2: and the one the one character who's properly got agency and properly stands for something is the girl the started kills herself
3: Mm -hmm. and like in the end they didn't have to make the sake kill her They could have, you know, killed her themselves somewhere off screen. Or maybe they could have. Yeah. yeah, But they could have also like let her live. Like there was, they literally wanted to make a point. No, you kill her you like her, yeah. you kill her. Yeah,
4: it's like an initiation thing. Yeah. One of the interesting things that this movie does is that you start with her, like you think she's the protagonist at the beginning of the movie and yeah. then mm-hmm. she like dies right away and you're just like, whoa. And I mean, I guess they are kind of warning you what you're, yeah. <laughs> what you're getting. And you do get kind of like a parallel of that with him having to shoot this woman at the end. But yeah, the woman at the beginning died for yeah. something and then the woman at the end, dies anyway, but she doesn't die for anything, right? Oh, and she sold yeah. out the whole thing that she supposedly believed in at the beginning, yeah. right?
2: Yeah, she sells out everything to avoid dying and to avoid being captured by the yeah. police, then she ends up being captured by the police and dying. There's no way out.
4: Yeah. I, I don't know if that's part of the message. <laughs> like, we all have to die. So, <laughs> die for something if you have the choice. Like, I don't
2: know. Yeah, it's like everyone who's trying to work within this system ends up being destroyed by it. Yeah. There's no there's no way out.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's another theme I didn't put on there. No way out. <laughs> yeah. Anybody have anything optimistic to say?
2: <laughs> well, my, my optimistic thing was, like, the whole time watching this, I'm wondering, like, what Oshi would have done with it. Oh. And I feel like his version would probably have been less disturbing. Mm-hmm. Because his style is a lot more heightened mm-hmm. it's a lot more like expressionist like the other two kerberos movies that he made before this they both end with the protagonist dying horribly as well mm. but it's like like one of them is a shootout with a group of people dressed as mimes. like with this white makeup and like the black suits on like doing these weird poses and doorways and stuff and it's like, I can imagine his version of this, like essentially playing out the same, but being so heightened and so like r- removing that level of realism, making it way more allegorical mm-hmm. and maybe h- hitting in a very different way.
0: I just imagine
2: the wolf brigade showing up
0: at the end and they're all literally wearing wolf masks. Like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's a little on the nose.
4: Very, very <laughs> yeah. Riverdale. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, as a positive thing or a, 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 an optimistic thing, uh, the movie does act as kind of a cautionary tale. Like yeah. when you give over your agency to these kinds of things, you know, violent organizations, mm-hmm. like you are not going to be the one that steers it towards a better yeah. world. Like you are going to be one of the soldiers. You're going to be one of the fodder and you're either going to die or you're going to have to kill someone you don't want to kill, which isn't positive, but it could have a positive effect (laughs) on us. (laughs) real positive, Alex. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah, thanks. Yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't need to be, like, the moral of the story is this. It's just, like, this is what happens. Like, this is just how these systems operate. This is what happens to the people in them.
3: It's like a philosophy class.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So is this really it? Just the reason why, like, authoritarian... Structures are so attractive; it's
2: just easier. Yeah, essentially, that's what I would say.
4: Yeah. yeah like, well, I mean, do you think this was—is this easy for fusei and was this easy? No, but it's—it's
2: it's easy for him to go along with the current. Like he doesn't have to. If you just don't ask questions and you just go along with it, like he'll.
4: But I think I think like the cave line of like, what choice did I have? Like, what was I supposed to do? I, I think there is like, if what you prioritize is just like your survival, right? And like, mm-hmm. like, I think we talked about, like, they're doing this all for like these other people's power. But I think those yeah. people, like their power game is just like them trying to like stay alive in this kind of like brutal dog yeah. eat dog world, wolf eat wolf world. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's just kind of like, like once that stuff starts, like, I mean, you can be the, the suicide bomber and like the, the rebel and, and you might die like that. Or you can ride the waves and maybe you'll survive, yeah. but you'll like lose your humanity in the process.
2: Yeah. Like, we, we talked about the like way at the start that like it's informed by real events where there was there was a very violent like left wing uprising that was essentially just like quashed. And there's that just disillusionment that runs through it.
0: Yeah, and 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 we kind of touched on this, or a uh, uh, glance off of it, but um, the alternate history thing, I think, is a way for Mamoru Oshii to criticize Japan and America without it being explicit. Yeah, absolutely. Because he's saying, like, look, if the Germans took over, it would have been the same fucking thing.
2: Yeah, essentially.
0: Like, how different was the American regime from a Nazi one? And how different mm-hmm. is a fantasy police state Japan Mm. from the actual
1: police state we were all, that I grew up in. Well, this one's
4: pretty bad. I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think I've come to a conclusion. Mm. So I'm I'm gonna say something kind of radical. Okay. All right, so everyone's gonna die, but some of us can contribute to like the next generation having a better quality of life. And the alternative is you can die having just been a good lieutenant Mm. of the way things are mm. or be one of the oppressors. That's what I'm feeling right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's real. That's mm-hmm. like, you know, it, it it is easy to lose sight of the cyclical nature of humanity and get bogged down in our own personal experience, like just trying to survive, just trying to keep our heads above water. And when you are surviving that way, when that's your goal or like the only thing you seem to be able to put energy towards, like I said, it's very easy to lose track of what you could be doing in the grand scheme Mm -hmm. of things.
3: It's kind of like what we do every day in just our normal lives. You're just trying to get up at 7 a.m., do your best to get to work on time, Mm -hmm. get out, get home by like 6, make dinner, and you have enough energy to maybe watch some Netflix and go to sleep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And like you think about what you technically could be doing with your time, you know, Mm -hmm. like just like discussing movies with friends and like building public housing projects and things like that. But we are all trapped. We are all caught in this day-to-day cycle. Most of us by like the forces of capitalism, but even without capitalism, there is still that daily grind struggle. Like even in a socialist utopia, you Mm. still need to navigate and balance your quality of life versus what you are uh, contributing to the world.
1: Mm. Oh my God. I've been fucking radicalized. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) You know, I was just thinking like how insidious it is. This idea, uh, like the protect armor, Mm. it like isolates you from people and like you see them through this filter. That's all red. Yeah. 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 So, you know, we already talked about this on our previous recording, uh, but you know, I am recently out as trans Mm. and uh, I am getting more intimately acquainted with my trans community. Mm. And prior to this, I didn't know people's stories, and now I do. And uh, I've got human faces to put on, things that are talked about in the news. I hear stories of very nice, kind-hearted, gentle people getting assaulted, Mm. and uh, I can't tolerate that. Good kids getting put onto the verge of homelessness. And again, of this stupid monoculture like authoritarian yeah. thing that's just growing i don't know why it's fucking growing but yeah so we have a trans visibility day coming yeah, up on yeah. the 31st and i was really on the fence about going down to dupont and mm. representing because i didn't want to get a bricks thrown at my head yeah. but uh whatever thank you jin Ro. are
3: you gonna wear your suit with the red eyes
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> there we go yeah in uh, pink blue and white <laughs> fuck some shit up.
4: I was going to say one thing I think is kind of interesting with this movie is like, you wouldn't have to change that much to like, just give it this like Hollywood ending of, you know, they get to that last scene and then he's like, I did what you wanted. I want out and I'm taking the girl. And then they ride off into the sunset. And, you know, then it's a story of like, love finding a way even in this totalitarian state
0: uh the korean remake has an ending that's very much like that no they don't get together but the ending is fusei fighting his commanding officer so that she can leave
2: yeah it's like the um the original ending of blade runner oh what yeah there's there's like 10 different versions of blade Runner, and there's one at the end where they just like escape together yeah
3: don't they already escape together
2: it depends on the version well no but they, they escape together and it's like happy it's like i found out she's not actually going to expire and then they like drive off with like and it's like these beautiful oh. like pine trees and everything and it's oh like- god
1: that is some bullshit
2: yes
0: yeah and i think that's what started the director's cut like movement yeah. is because what's his name was so upset Scott, with the theatrical yeah. release he was Yeah, like yeah wh-? and then like at some point he mm. got enough money he was like i'm gonna do yeah. my own cut of it to
2: the point where like the director's cut of blade run is the one most people have actually seen the original cut almost no one's actually watched it because it was pretty much just in cinema oh. and then every vhs you saw since then was ridley scott's cut yeah isn't that wild if you want to see like a slightly less depressing genre. Yeah. You can watch uh, Pat Labor 2, which has a very similar plot. Ooh. And it, it, instead of ending on this note of, like, everything is completely fucked up, it ends on this note of just, like, ambiguity. Mm-hmm. It's a very similar ending where this is, like, kind of clandestine conspiracy that's then confronted. But because it's Pat Labor and people aren't shooting each other, mm. it just ends with an arrest. But then the arrest is, like, well, they, they talk to the guy who's orchestrated the whole thing and they're like... But you set this, like, all this stuff up and you've watched it fall apart. Why are you still alive? Why didn't you just do the honorable thing and kill yourself? And then he looks out across the city that he's, like, talking about how everything here is about to collapse. He says, I just want to see what happens next. Um. And that's the end of it
0: man i gotta watch that i recently yeah. watched pat labore for the first time uh um, yeah and i was like oh my gosh this is so fucking good and the no, first, I have to which
2: one because there's so many different versions the oh, series or the film or the the
0: film
1: uh i know that alex is going to ask a, a closing question okay. but i wanted to ask one of my own okay uh instead of asking like what would be your like anime wreck if someone liked this i want to ask What's something you could recommend that would help radicalize someone against uh, totalitarian power systems? Books, movies, anything. Growing up in the Soviet Union. Yes, Sin, how does that? No,
3: that's the opposite. You grow up in the Soviet Union. Like, all the ideas of the Union are embedded in
4: you. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> she, all right. She's just propagating it. On her... Sin had a
2: plan that, like, I was complaining about the government here, and she's like, well, we'll just annex it. And we'll have Soviet Union too. Oh God! I like this
0: plan. I'm I'm 100 behind it's it. Just
2: Canada and Australia joined together. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Both former British colonies. It makes sense.
2: Oh, you'd rule two hemispheres. <laughs> oh. I'm looking over at my DVDs, and I can't I can't think of anything that's sort of better than Jinro, I think in terms of that because uh-huh. yeah, most of what I own is is quite. Fluffy stuff and the weird stuff I'm looking into, like psychological horror stuff. So I don't know.
1: All right, well, let me modify it then. Like, what would be a good, nice, easy come down after you've watched Jinro?
3: Reborn. Oh. There's seven seasons. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. You never disappoint me,
2: son. <laughs> I think I think if, if someone liked Jinro, but thought it was a little too heavy, the prior Oshi things are, uh, like I was saying, they're a lot more heightened, they're a lot more, like, allegorical. There's, like, the personal pain isn't so much to the forefront as it is in Jinro. And, like, Alex, you saw Pat Labor recently, and, like, that's that's kind of the reason Jinro exists, essentially. Because o- Oshi like... He had been working in anime a very long time, and he'd done stuff for studios. He was working on, like, Urusei Yatsura and stuff like that. Yeah, and then Pat Labor was, like, the sort of, he's now cemented as, like, he's an auteur kind of thing. It's similar in themes, I think, to Jinro, where it's all about, like, this, like, Japan post-occupation, like, what that did to the country, Mm -hmm. sort of police infighting, people struggling over stuff, and, like, the... Like, that, the, like, like I mentioned, like the scene with the demolished building near the playground,
0: mm-hmm.
2: like Pat Labor is essentially that scene as a film in the form of like a detective story about like, because like, you know, like now that you've seen it, like the way that like the villain in the first Pat Labor movie is dead when the movie starts. Brilliant. And it is just, he leaves this trail. Like, like you would expect like a movie serial killer to do. Like I'm leaving clues for everybody. But the reason he leaves the trail is to lead people on this specific journey through all of these like houses that are being demolished. They keep finding like, this is his previous address and they get there and it's already demolished. And this leads leading them through the rubble of this city to sort of make his point. And it, it reminds me a lot of like, um, like old, like Asimov, like robot stories where it's like the story is about... Sort of thinking about how this technology would work in the real world and then extrapolating from that, what would that do to, like, the, the sort of, like, the crimes that would be committed, like, how you would go about destabilizing it and things like that. And there's, like, the, the, the guys who made it are all, like, obsessive technology heads, and they did this whole thing about like, if the robots really existed, they would work like this, like they would be this tall, they would have this kind of power thing, you would transport them like this, and it's all really, really obsessively laid out. It's, it's that, but like, because it's about basically just like, it's like a detective series. It's not very violent.
1: Well, we'll have to do that movie sometime. And
2: have oh, that'd back be, yeah, yeah, I'd love that. Yeah. I've never seen it. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, I always confused. uh Pat Labor with appleseed. I don't know oh, why. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, they have it
2: came about around the same time.
0: And the Mechs have very similar heads. They have little radar heads. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah and like, hmm? well, no, but like, Oshi o- 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 Oshi has worked with Shiro, and like, they're like. oh Okay. He's like a big. That's why he did Ghost in the Shell because he's like a big fan of Shiro. Okay. Because he did. Did you see Dominion? Have either of you seen Dominion? Tank Police. Yeah. I did, but I don't remember it. That's like if Kerberos was a comedy, it would be Dominion.
4: Because oh, it's just okay. like
2: it's this like just exact no, it's it's getting this like Japan is like a right-wing authoritarian hellhole and just just exaggerating to the point where the police have a tank division that's just driving yeah. around the city, just blowing up buildings. Oh my God. And if you if you ever get hold of the first the OVA series, they do like the English dub is really good because they just play it for last the whole time. And there's this guy just banging his fist and telling me, you liberal pansies need to give us more tanks. he's <laughs> just, just driving over, like, cars and shit. And, like, okay. everyone is screaming at them and, like, blowing up buildings and just shrugging. And it's like... All right, that's what I need to watch yeah, now to, like, yeah, sort okay, of come down yeah. from this. Okay, if you, if you think Jinro uh, should have been a comedy, watch Tank Police.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. Nobody dies. They just wake up with comedy bandages. (laughs) (laughs) And the villain is, like, this, like, weird, like, he looks like Louis Louis Guzman, um, like, but as a a Blade Runner character. And he's hangers-on at these two, like, android cat girls. It's like... Oh, I love Louis Guzman. Yeah, yeah. It's like cyborg Louis Guzman and his two cat girls. Wow. (laughs) Dominion, like, it was one of the first anime I saw, so it, like, stuck with me.
1: Yeah, what you're describing is what my recollection was.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's very, very anarchic.
1: Are we ready? Okay. Pen.
2: Pen. Pals. Pals.
1: We have five lights. Oh my god,
0: it's so many lights. Wait, no, there are four lights. There are what? not five lights. No, I'm kidding. It's four lights. It's five
2: lights. Star Trek. Lights, so just, you know, that was
3: not a very funny joke. <laughs> <laughs> you made us worry. Ooh. You said this is a stress-free experience.
0: <laughs> is this because I made fun of your robot?
3: Oh my god, yes. Yeah, someone who shall rename Nameless didn't know. <laughs> What what robot that was? And they they admitted to never playing Fallout and they then then they said Fallout 3 and 4 are bad. And I'm about to quit this bitch because I'm like, what?
0: Oh no. Oh my god. Like, look at this.
3: What is my mug? Unironically.
0: It is (laughs) someone with a blue shirt and a upside-down yellow shirt. Is that is that, oh, it's, uh, wait, are they called Vault Boys? I think that, that rings a bell.
3: Yeah, it's a vault. It's a it? literal mascot.
4: I was okay. about to say Fall Guy, but that's that's
1: <laughs> oh. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. <laughs> <laughs>